The Old Testament reading today is Psalm 67. The sermon text is 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. Psalm 67, and then 1 Timothy 2, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of the Lord. Psalm 67, to the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm, a song. May God be gracious to us and bless us, and make His face to shine upon us, Selah, that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth, Selah. Let the people praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear Him. Let us go now to 1 Timothy chapter 2, starting at verse 1. 1 Timothy 2, verse 1. Here Paul exhorts... Timothy, his co-worker in the gospel, saying, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is, imple- and, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. So far the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. Here at the beginning of chapter 2, we have a shift in focus. In chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, Paul commanded Timothy to do certain things as a minister of the word. But here in chapter 2, Paul commands Timothy to see to it that the church does certain things. The church, that is the church in Ephesus where Timothy ministered, and every local church in every place and time, is to engage in certain activities. And what is the very first activity that Paul urges the church to engage in? You will notice that Paul urges the church to pray. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, the apostle says. The church is to devote itself to prayer. And when we pray, we are to pray for all kinds of people, the Apostle says. In verse 1, we read the words, first of all. First of all can either mean first in sequence, as in, here's the first thing I want to talk about, or first in importance. Um, First of all, above all else, and of greatest importance is this. So, Paul likely had both ideas in mind when he wrote the words, first of all. This was the first thing that he commanded the church to do because it is also 
of first importance. What is the church to do? What activities is she to engage in? First of all, Paul says, the church must pray. The church must pray. Sadly, prayer is often of least importance to individual Christians and to the church. Prayer is often the last thing that we do. It is often treated as a last resort. When everything else fails, then we will pray, is the attitude that many of us possess within our hearts. But prayer ought to be of first importance to us. It should be where we start, not where we end up when all else fails. This should be true of us personally. And this should also be true of us corporately as the church of the living God. And that is why Paul urges prayer within the congregation. First of all, then, I urge that prayers be offered up, he says. He, he urges us to do this. Now, to urge is to ask for something earnestly or to plead for something. And here Paul pleads with Timothy and through him with the church of Ephesus and even with us to be people devoted to prayer. And really, this should not surprise us. One of the characteristics of the people of God in every age is that they commune in prayer and intercede with God on behalf of the world and concerning the new covenant people of God, which is what we are. The prophet Isaiah said, and the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to Him, to love the Lord, the name of the Lord, and to be His servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That is Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 7. I want you to ponder that. Even under the old covenant, so long before the Christ was born into the world, the prophet Isaiah spoke of the new covenant people of God. This people that will consist not only of the Jews, ethnically speaking, but also of the Gentiles. They will be joined to them. This new covenant of pe people of God is called a house of prayer. And indeed, that is how Christ Himself and the apostles viewed the church as the temple of the Holy Spirit. This we have considered much. But we should not be surprised, therefore, to see this emphasis coming from the apostle. What is the church to devote herself to firstly? She is to, vote, to devote herself to prayer. This is what Paul urges. We are to be a house of prayer, and as a house of prayer, we are to see to it that prayers are offered up, notice Isaiah 56, 7, for all peoples. For all peoples. That is to say, for all nations. If prayers were to be offered up in the temple under the old covenant, how much more in the new covenant temple of God, now that the blood of the Christ has been shed to make atonement for sins and to reconcile men to God, the church is the church of the living God. She is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The church is a house of prayer for all people. And it is no wonder then that this is the first thing the apostle urged. He urged that prayers be offered up to God within the church, for this is the church's design. God has reconciled to him us to Himself so that we might commune with Him. And we are to be Christ's ambassadors here on earth, a light in the darkness. We are to pray for all people. We are to intercede on behalf of all nations.
Specifically, Paul urged that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. These terms, all of them, refer to prayer, but they each highlight a different aspect of prayer. To supplicate is to make requests for the specific needs of others. To pray is to bring others before God to seek their blessing in a general way. To intercede is to appeal to God boldly on behalf of others. And with thanksgivings, we express gratitude to God for others and for the work that God is doing in them, through them, and for them. Now, I suppose Paul could have simply said, first of all, then, I urge you to pray. But by piling up these terms, he reminds us of the variety of ways that we can and should pray for others. We are to supplicate, praying for the specific needs of others. We are to pray for others Generally, that is to say, we are to seek the Lord's blessing on their behalf. We are to intercede, appealing to God boldly on behalf of others. And we are also to bring our request to God in the form of thanksgiving. The church, brothers and sisters, is to be a house of prayer. The members are to devote themselves to private prayer. And when we assemble, we are to address God in prayer. This we do on the Lord's Day morning as... Officers of the church do pray in a leadership sort of way on behalf of the congregation. And when those prayers are concluded, the whole congregation says that familiar word, Amen. Let it be so. We agree. And so the congregation is praying. And even when we sing songs, are we not praying together? The truth of Scripture back to God. We are pleading with God through our singing. We are praying as a congregation. And as we assemble on the Lord's Day evening, we pray in yet another way as a congregation. We have a, a time of corporate prayer where the members of the church are encouraged to pray aloud to God. And when they conclude their prayer, what do all of the other members say? In agreement, they say again, Amen. The church of God is to be a house of prayer. Brothers and sisters, is prayer of first importance to you? That is the question that we must ask. Is it of first importance to us as a congregation? And here Paul urges us to pray. And then he more specifically urges that these prayers be offered up for all people. For all people. What does Paul mean when he urges that prayers be made for all people? Clearly he means that prayers are to be offered up to God by the church for all kinds of people. Now I know that some might object to this saying, but the word kind is nowhere to be found in this passage. Or they might object to this saying, all must mean all without exception or qualification. But I ask, is that true? Is that true? Must all always mean all without qualification or exception? If I say to you, all are invited to my house for lunch today, it is clear that I do not mean all without exception. The whole world would not then be invited to my house for lunch today, but only you who are present to hear me make such a statement. All are invited to my house today. You all are, is of course the meaning. The context naturally clarifies what is meant by all, and such is the case with this passage. When Paul commands that prayers be offered up on behalf of all people, he means all types of people. First of all, it would be absurd for Paul to urge that prayers be offered up 
by the church in Ephesus for every individual person alive on planet earth without exception. They would not be able to do it. Even if they tried, they wouldn't even be able to come close. Clearly, that is what, not what Paul means here. Secondly, it is not uncommon for Paul or others to use the word all to mean all kinds or to refer to all of a particular group. For example, Romans 12.18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. There it is, the same Greek word uh, that is being used. And is it, it is abundantly clear that when Paul uses the word all here, he does not mean be at peace with every person on the planet, most of whom these people didn't even know, but rather be at peace with those that you come into contact with. And so no, all does not mean all without exception. In fact, all often has reference to a particular group, class, or kind of people. And it is the context that makes the limitations clear. And this passage makes it abundantly clear that Paul means all kinds of people. Thirdly, you will notice that the next verse does clarify what Paul means. First of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. Now look at verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. The church is not to limit its prayers to a certain kind or class of person, but is to pray for all kinds of people, and that even includes kings and all who are in high positions. The church is not to discriminate in its prayer life on the basis of ethnicity, class, age, gender, or any other thing that might divide us. The church is to pray indiscriminately for all kinds of people. This might seem obvious to you, but human history shows that this is not obvious to all. In our sin, we discriminate against those not like us. Perhaps you have noticed this. In sin, we forget that we have humanity in common, which means that we share the image of God in common. The world is divided by so many things, ethnicity, gender, age, and class among them, but the Christian must never discriminate, for the Christian knows that all of these bear the image of God. And the Christian also knows that Christ died not for a particular kind of person, but for all kinds of people. He died to redeem people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He died for males and females, for young and old, for rich and poor, for the strong and the weak. If God has not discriminated along these lines, then neither can we discriminate along these lines. Our supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings are to be made for all people, even for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, now, why did Paul feel it necessary to specifically exhort the church in Ephesus to pray for this kind or class of person? Prayers are to be offered up for all people. And then he clarifies and specifies saying kings and for those who are in high positions. Well, we should not forget that the early church was often persecuted by this kind or class of person. 
We should remember that most of the converts in the early church were not a part of this class that is mentioned. Paul's words to the Corinthians make this clear. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, Paul was making a different point there in 1 Corinthians 1, but the passage does show us that the vast majority of the converts in the early church were not kings and those who held high positions within society. And so it is not hard to imagine why Paul would need to say this to the Ephesians, uh, to put it into my own words. It is as if Paul said, do not discriminate in your prayers, brothers and sisters. Pray for all kinds of people, for Christ came to redeem all kinds of people. And yes, This even includes kings and all who are in high positions, though it is true that they are the ones who oppress you, though it is true that they are the ones who persecute you. Though the church in this country has not experienced persecution from the governmental powers in the way that the early church did, there does still exist a division in this country between the political class and those who are citizens. And it is possible that Christians fall into the same trap. It is possible that we begin to view the political class or members of a particular political party within the political class as being pure evil or irredeemable and thus we discriminate against them in our prayer life. And what I am saying to you brothers and sisters is that this cannot be. We must pray for all kinds of people, for presidents, for governors, and all who are in high positions. We must pray, of course, that they come to salvation through Jesus the Christ, who is the only mediator between God and man, and also that the Lord would use them for good given the positions that they hold within society. They hold those positions because it is the will of God that they do, and so we should pray for their success, that they would indeed be used by the Lord to preserve society in general and to promote justice in this place. When Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he urged them to pray for all kinds of people, and he specifically identified those with political power. And so I think we are safe to assume that the Ephesians were falling short in this regard. Perhaps this was because they endured persecution from this kind of person. But perhaps the false teaching that was present amongst them also led to this discrimination against certain kinds of people But we really can only speculate about this. It may be that this false teaching that was present in their midst did give preference, let's say, to the Jewish race over and against the Gentile race. And so perhaps people in the church in Ephesus were struggling to pray for these Gentile rulers and these Gentiles who had positions of power within the society. These were the ones who also persecuted them. Earlier I did say that it might seem obvious to you that prayers are to be offered up for all kinds of people. And perhaps it is obvious to you, but perhaps it is not so obvious. It is possible that you yourself have begun to discriminate in your prayer life. It is possible that, though you would never say it, you have begun to view a particular kind of person as being beyond the limits, uh, irredeemable and thus not worthy of prayer. In our context, our cultural context, the discrimination is typically racial or socioeconomic. 
Perhaps you've noticed this. And brothers and sisters, I am saying again, it cannot be. We must offer up prayers for all kinds of people as we seek their good and ultimately their salvation in Christ Jesus. There is one truth that is essential if we are to maintain this unbiased disposition towards all. And it is the truth that men and women of all sorts are made in the image of God. There are no exceptions to this. You will never meet a human being who is not an image bearer. All humans share this in common. We have the same Creator. We are made in His image. We have the same blood running through our veins, therefore. We have equal dignity and worth. And this is what unites us. And I believe that this unity is very profound. But within the unity that is humanity, there is also diversity. There is also diversity. The human race is diverse. And the diversity is beautiful. It is not to be denied, but it is to be appreciated by us. The human race is made up of many individuals, each with their own personality. Some are male, some are female, some are rich and some are poor, some are powerful, some are weak. Each person has their own unique history. Each one differs in appearance, each differs in ability. The diversity is not to be despised, but it is to be celebrated by us. When we consider the unity of humanity and the simultaneous diversity of humanity, we are to see something beautiful in it, for this unity in diversity images God, who is eternally one and three. But as you know, throughout the history of the world, sinful man has not considered the unity and diversity within humanity to be beautiful and something to be celebrated. Instead, many have warred against the image of the triune God in humanity by either trying to obliterate what distinguishes or by doing violence to what unifies us. And this problem will never go away, brothers and sisters, not until Christ returns to make all things new. It will simply manifest itself in different ways. Sinful humans will always war against the diversity in humanity. Today, Many wish to deny the differences between males and females, for example. And perhaps this movement is in response to the fact that others have done violence on the other side. That is, violence to the unity of men and women. Both are image bearers, as we know. Both stand before God as equals. But men have often oppressed women, and women do sometimes oppress men. Neither those who deny the differences nor those who do violence to the unity are right. Both fail. To appreciate the beauty of the image of the triune God in humanity. And the same may be said of matters of race or ethnicity. Some wish to obliterate the differences, which I think is very sad, because something very beautiful is lost when we do, and others, they do violence to the unity. And this is tragically unjust when men of power oppress men of weakness on the basis of the color of their skin, forgetting that all have the same Creator and bear. His image. As I have said, this problem will not go away until Christ returns. The problem may increase or decrease from time to time. It will certainly manifest itself in different ways. But fallen humanity will always war against God, His design in creation, and His image in humanity, particularly as it pertains to the unity and diversity that exists within it. But there is one place where we should expect this perennial problem to melt away completely. And where is that, brothers and sisters? Except in the church. 
The church is the present and earthly manifestation of the kingdom of God and the inbreaking of the age to come into this present evil age. The church, in this church, we are to see diversity. This diversity that exists within humanity must never be denied within the church. The diversity must be celebrated in Christ. How marvelous and beautiful it is to consider humanity as individual persons, each with unique personalities, histories, experiences, and gifts. How beautiful it is to consider the differences between male and female and the distinguishing characteristics of the cultures and customs of this earth. This diversity is to be enjoyed, brothers and sisters. You have heard the expression, I'm sure, that variety is the spice of life. Haven't you heard that? I think it is true. And so, it applies here. The diversity that exists within humanity is to be appreciated and enjoyed, but never is it to lead to division, to devaluation, or the oppression of others. For we share the image of God in common within, with the rest of humanity. And more than this, those in Christ share Christ in common. The image has been renewed in us through faith in Him. Indeed, as the Apostle says elsewhere, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This discussion concerning the diversity and unity that exists within the human race might have seemed to you to be a giant tangent. Is that the case? Where is he going with this? Or where does he get this from, this text? But I, could, I hope that you can see how it pertains. It pertains. Because if we are to pray for all kinds of people, as the Apostle here commands, then we must first appreciate the diversity in humanity while never losing sight of our fundamental unity. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, yes, even, those are my words, for kings and all who are in high positions. And then Paul adds this little remark, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. One of the reasons that we are to pray for those who have civil authority is so that we might live a peaceful and quiet life. Do not forget, brothers and sisters, that the job of the civil authority is to preserve peace through the promotion of justice. This is their obligation. God has given it to them. Their job is to preserve peace through the promotion of justice. The civil authorities exist to punish the wrongdoer, and particularly those who do violence to others. When we pray for those who have civil authority, we are to pray not only for their salvation, therefore, but also that they would do the job that God has given them to do in the civil realm, leading to a peaceful and quiet life for those who live within their jurisdiction. The government's job is to protect its citizens from harm. They are to protect their citizens from the harm of foreign powers, and they are also to protect their citizens from the harm of other citizens by upholding justice. The Christians in Ephesus lived under the threat of persecution from these governing authorities, and so this gave them all the more reason to pray for them. Lord, would you move these men who have been given this authority from you to do what you have called them to do? May they stop abusing their powers and oppressing us, but rather will they promote justice in this place. Lord, our desire is to live at peace. Our desire, O Lord, is to live quiet lives, 
peaceful lives? Would you promote quiet and peace amongst us through these civil authorities that you have placed over us so that we might give worship to you and further the kingdom in this place? That is what the church in Ephesus was to pray for, and that is what we are to pray for is as well. They were to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, the apostle adds. And this is how Christians are always to live within the world. They are to live godly lives. This means that they are to live lives of holiness before God and man. They are to live a pious life, a life of obedience. They are to be dignified, and this means they are to live in a way that is fitting for a child of God. And perhaps you have noticed how tempting it is to respond to government overreach and oppression by ranting and raving against those with authority. It is so tempting to begin to speak evil against those who abuse their power. But this is not the way of Christ. The Christian is to behave in a godly and dignified way, according to the Apostle, even in the face of persecution. And so where is the Christian to go with his frustrations? Where is he to go with his fears? The Apostle is clear. He is to go first to prayer. He is to pray for presidents, for senators and governors. And having prayed, he is to live a godly and dignified life as he entrusts himself to God, who is sovereign over all. Once again, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. This includes kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And after this, the Apostle says, This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is good, Paul says. Well, well what is good? What are you referring to, Paul? It is good that prayers be offered up for all kinds of people. This is good. This is right. And why is it good? Why is it good, we might ask? Well, it is good because it corresponds to God's desire for all kinds of people to be saved. That is why it is good. By the way, a thing can only be called good when it corresponds to God and to His will. Things are good and beautiful and lovely only when they correspond to God and fulfill His design for the thing, whatever it may be. That is a tangent. But think upon it, brothers and sisters, why do we call things good? We should only call them good when they correspond to God and to His will for any given thing. And Paul is here saying that prayers offered up for all people are good because they correspond with God's will. He, I quote again, desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. You will notice that God is here called God our Savior. We are accustomed to calling Jesus Christ our Savior. Rarely do we refer to God as our Savior, but He certainly is. God has saved us through His Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God the Father is our Savior. There are some who claim that this passage that we are now considering contradicts the doctrine of election or predestination. The doctrine of predestination teaches that it is God's will to save some. 
And if you believe the Bible, then you must believe the doctrine of predestination. It is not some obscure doctrine. No, it is clearly taught in many places. One of them being Ephesians 1, 3-6. There Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace, with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So there, Paul, in writing to the church in Ephesus, does emphasize that those in Christ are chosen of the Lord. They are predestined. And this is all not based upon us, but according to the purpose of God's will. What is God's will according to Ephesians 1, 3 through 6? By the way, writing to the church in Ephesus, which was where Paul was, Timothy was ministering. What is the purpose of His will? Well, it is to save these whom He has chosen. There are many other passages which teach that God has determined to save some. But this passage says that God our Savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And so you can see where the perceived conflict lies. Is God conflicted within Himself then? Is He conflicted within Himself? Did He on the one hand determine to save some and send the Son to atone for their sins and on the other hand wish that all would be saved? Is our God conflicted internally? Willing the salvation of the elect on the one hand, but kind of wishing that all would come to salvation on the other hand. And I hope that you would agree, no, it is absurd to speak of God in this way. God cannot be conflicted within Himself, and neither can contradictions be found in His Word. The solution is really quite simple. This passage is simply teaching that God's will is for all kinds of people to be saved. The context makes this abundantly clear. The reasoning of the Apostle is very tight in this passage. Prayers are to be offered up on behalf of all kinds of people, even for kings and those who are in high positions. This is good and pleasing to God our Savior because His will is that all kinds of people be saved. And as we will see as we progress to the end of this passage, if they are to be saved, they must be saved through faith in Jesus the Christ, for He is the only mediator between God and man. There is diversity within humanity. There are all kinds of people within the human race, powerful and weak people, males and females. There are many nations, many ethnicities represented within the human race, but there is only one mediator between God and man. It is the man, Jesus Christ. And you will also notice the way that the Apostle concludes this whole presentation here. He is emphasizing that he has been appointed as an Apostle to preach this Gospel. And who is he preaching it to? A Jewish man preaching this Gospel, the Gospel of the Kingdom, even to the Gentiles. Even to the Gentiles. They, the people who were once far off, are being brought near the the people of God and the Kingdom of God is being filled now with all kinds of people. And indeed, we are to pray for all kinds of people. For it is God's will that all kinds of people be saved. Stated differently, God's will for the church is that she pray. And the prayer life of the church is to correspond to God's redemptive purpose. We are to pray for all people, for God's will is to save all people. 
in the new heavens and the new earth, we will find people from every tongue, tribe, and nation standing before God, giving glory to His name. And we must do this. We must pray for all kinds of people, for it is the will of God to save all kinds of people, and this He will certainly do. For God's will cannot be frustrated. What a terrible thing to suggest that God wills something that He will not accomplish. God's will cannot be frustrated. He will accomplish all of His purposes through Christ Jesus, the only mediator between God and man. And that brings us to the final point. Though there are many kinds of people in the world, there is only one mediator between God and man, Christ the Lord. Verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Do not forget that in the ancient world, that is the world in which Paul lived, the predominant belief was that there were many gods. Each nation had its gods. Each tribe had its gods. Even these cities had gods that they worshipped. The Romans had theirs. But the Christian claim is that there is only one true God. There is only one. He is the creator of all things, seen and unseen. He is the God not only of the Jews and of the Christians, but of the Romans also. Indeed, He is the God of all nations, even if they do not recognize Him as such. And their so-called gods are not gods at all, but are the idols of men. All humanity shares this in common. Therefore, they come from one God. And they are made in His image. And they also share the same problem. All have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. They are alienated from this one true God and are under His wrath, therefore. But God is gracious. He has provided a Savior. Notice He has not provided many saviors. One for this tribe or this nation and another for that tribe or that nation. But He has provided one Savior for all of the fallen children of Adam. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. A mediator is a go-between. A mediator is a middleman whose job it is to reconcile or bring together parties who are at odds. And in this case, it is God who is at odds with all humanity. And the mediator is Jesus Christ. He was brought into the world. The, um, he, he was brought into the world um, to serve as this one mediator between God and man. The only way to be reconciled or made right with God is through faith in Him. Notice that Paul says that Christ gave Himself as a ransom for all. He gave Himself as a ransom for all. Again, if all means all without exception, then we have a contradiction in the Scriptures. For elsewhere the Scriptures teach that Christ laid down His life for the church and not for the world, for the sheep and not the goats. And when Christ instituted the Lord's Supper, He, he took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is My blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Christ shed His blood for 
many, but not for all. Why then does Paul say that Christ gave himself as a ransom for all? I do hope that by now, at this point in the sermon, the message is clear to you. There is only one God, and there is only one mediator between God and man, Christ the Lord. And Christ gave himself up at just the right time, and this he did, not for the Jews only, but for all nations. He died for all the peoples of the earth, so that he might redeem not only the children of Abraham, but the children of Adam too. In the new heavens and new earth, there will be a new humanity washed in the blood of the Lamb. This new humanity will be perfectly united in Christ, but it will be diverse, brothers and sisters, a true reflection of our great God, who is one and three. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, I do ask that you would move us as your people to be people of prayer. Move us to be people of prayer individually. Move us to be people of prayer corporately. Father, we do understand that your will is to save all people. And I pray, Father, that you will help us to pray indiscriminately for all people. We pray for those who govern, that they would govern well and according to your law. We pray that we would be blessed to live at peace here in this land. And we also pray that we would use that peace, not for our own pleasure, but for the furtherance of your kingdom. Father, we pray that you would bring salvation to those who govern also, that you would save their souls. And we pray for the souls of those who live in this community that you would save them. Father, we pray that you would fill this church with diversity, the same diversity that exists within this community around us. We do pray that you would fill this church with that kind of diversity. And Father, if there is any prejudice in our hearts, drive it away. Father, help us to pray indiscriminately. We ask that your kingdom would be advanced until Christ returns and all of God's people say, Amen.